Hi, and welcome back to Reimagine, Systems Reset Edition. I'm your host, Peter Drobak, coming to you from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship in Oxford. In this special series, we've been exploring how we might move from crisis to transformation in an age of pandemics. We've been challenged to rethink our place in an entangled world and to be good ancestors who protect future generations. We've explored how to build equitable health systems, inclusive and sustainable economies, and how to address the climate crisis. And we've explored new frames to address entrenched inequality and injustice. In this last episode of the current series, we're talking about what I think are the two X factors of 2020, leadership and trust. Ask yourself this question, what differentiates the places around the world that have responded to COVID-19 effectively from those that have seen uncontrolled viral spread, excess mortality, and economic devastation? The answer is not the number of ventilators or hospital beds, not the concentration of scientific expertise, not GDP. It's leadership. And trust goes hand in hand with leadership. High-trust societies have, for the most part, banded together with a sense of common purpose. Low-trust societies, or those in which leaders have squandered trust, have fractured and continue to flail. You know the trope about reputation, that it takes years to build but can be destroyed in minutes? I think that applies to trust as well. Trust is at the heart of what happens in humanity's next chapter— Global threats call for solidarity, and systemic change can only happen when people with different worldviews come together. Trust is the glue that binds us together, but it seems to be in short supply these days. And to help us explore all this is Rachel Botsman. I thought you were going to go all Louis Theroux on me and like, can you hear me? Let's do a sound check. (laughs) Rachel is a colleague of mine in Oxford and a leading expert on trust in the modern world. She's the author of Who Can You Trust?, a great book that explores how technology is transforming our relationship to trust. And as the first trust fellow here at Said Business School, Rachel aims to challenge and change the way people think about trust and related topics like power, influence, truth, and beliefs. Do check out her podcast, Trust Issues, which is a fascinating listen. Rachel also gave us the title for this episode, Tetris in a Minecraft World, It's a neat metaphor for the profound transformation we're experiencing in a world that's moved from hierarchies to distributed networks, a world where the rules of the game are being upended. Have a listen. I've got two young kids. They love to play Minecraft. And I had an old Nintendo Game Boy at home. And I was showing them Tetris. And they said, it's the weirdest game in the world. Blocks fall from the sky and you got to arrange them, but you can never beat the system. And I said, well, how does Minecraft work? And they said, it's my world and my rules. I know it seems silly, but I realized like we grew up in a Tetris world of trust. There were rules and there was top down enforcement and we looked up to people that we trust and they are growing up in a Minecraft world of trust that is completely distributed. And I think the mistake is to still believe that we are in this Tetris world of trust and that's how we move people. (laughs) The fact that I'm lost in my own kid's Minecraft world has just taken on a deeper meaning. We're going to talk about trust in the era of COVID-19, especially when it comes to the new vaccines, the Cummings effect that occurs when leaders flout their own rules, and what Rachel calls the trust leaps that power reinvention. 
We also chat about the implications for leadership in a world rife with uncertainty. But I started by asking Rachel what trust, that ephemeral concept, actually is and when it started to break down. Trust is is one of the hardest concepts to define. Funny enough, it has more definitions, sociological definitions than the word love. And I think where we struggle is at the end of the day, trust is a feeling. It's a human feeling. And my definition of trust is is simple, um, that trust is a confident relationship with the unknown. So if you think about people that you deeply trust in your life, those relationships uh, mean you have faith and confidence in that person without knowing what they're up to. Work colleagues that you have a great relationship with, you just let them get on with things. But you can apply the same principle to a tech platform. So a system that you have faith in, you don't need to know how the inner workings of that system works, Uh, an institution, a political leader. And so the very essence of trust is actually this space of not knowing, being in this space of the unknown. And that's why trust is really this remarkable force that allows us to place our faith in strangers, take risks, do all these things, innovate, move forwards, but is also like a social glue that you need it in so many areas of your life for people to have faith and confidence, whether that's a financial system, public health, education, whatever that may be. For the first time, I think many people are experiencing firsthand what happens when trust breaks down or it completely disappears. Um, You know, there's phases that people go through. So the first phase is this defensiveness. The second phase is disengagement. And then the third phase, which is incredibly dangerous, is complete disenchantment, right? So the system doesn't work. I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to move over to something completely different. And we've seen that play out in spades in, in the US, but also here in the UK. But this erosion of trust in institutions you know, really became amplified and accelerated during the great financial uh, crash during the GFC. And it wasn't just the event itself and losing faith in the financial system. Um, It was the aftermath of that that really Mm. damaged public confidence. So you always say in a trust crisis, there is the event itself. And then there is identifying the systemic causes and the causes, they lie in people, right? They lie in people, in behaviors and cultures um, and systems often amplify or reward the wrong kinds of behaviors. But what happened after the financial crisis is that we didn't see people held accountable. Mm -hmm. We didn't see the system fundamentally change. And it felt like there was different rules for the rich and the powerful and the elite. And that has left a trust scar that I personally think will last for generations because you can say, well, you know, the whole economy can collapse and there are people who are to blame and should be held accountable. And that doesn't happen, but also the system doesn't fundamentally change. So who is the system for? Is the system for me? And so I think what we're seeing again is, is people say the same thing is, government in a crisis, the healthcare system so far has held up pretty well, well, from the outside, but what's really going to change? And so it's that loss of faith that is 
so sad and actually uh, pretty depressing that the public feels and 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 you know you see also in the media the trust crisis that happened around the US election the last US election not the most recent one where people said well how can I ever believe in what I read is true or that we can ever have a fair democratic process Hmm. and so this has been building up for a long time this this erosion of trust in institutions but the thing I always say is like it's really powerful to think of trust like energy you know and, and energy it doesn't get destroyed it changes form and I feel this the natural instinct of human beings is to trust and that is a good thing we should be trusting and so what we have to do is we have to they people want to put that trust somewhere and so it's how do you take that energy and move it in a different direction versus it just getting caught up in a vacuum where we can end up placing our trust in the wrong things and the wrong people and the wrong information I've never thought about it that way. Um, I find it equally depressing sometimes and, and just worry that if we can't trust our institutions or at least portions of us can't trust them, if we can't trust, you know, Tony Fauci and doctors to tell us about, you know, scientific um, truths, then then kind of where are we? And, and in your book on trust, you talked about sort of this evolution that, um, you know, in times past, trust was um, was largely within communities. It evolved sort of towards trust in institutions. And now we're in a moment where through sort of the gig economy and other kinds of things that we're actually putting putting trust in strangers. Um, are we putting trust in strangers or are we putting trust in the in the algorithm? Yeah, it's it's a good question. Um, you know, just to take that back a step, it was where this theory came from was uh, people kept asking me a question of, of how can trust in government and banks and the media be in such a state of decline? And how, why is everyone talking about trust in crisis? And yet in all different areas of our lives, we're seeing these remarkable examples of trust, um, you know, obvious ones being that, you press an app on your phone and and you get in a car with a stranger or you book a home on Airbnb. And I thought this was a really fascinating Mm. question. Um, And that led to this idea of local institutional and distributed trust. I should say that my thinking around this has really changed. So I first started writing about this 10 years ago, and I believed that a lot of the faith and where the trust really resided was with the people. So I spoke about, you know, you need trust in the idea, you need trust in the technology and the platform, and then you need trust between users. And to your question, I still think that very much is the case. But part of the problem, part of the mess that we're in around information and misinformation on social media is underestimating, underplaying the role that trust in the platform and the algorithm plays, whether it be around information or search, how much confidence and faith we actually place in that algorithm and how important that relationship is. And I wonder about this this idea of trust in strangers, how that may be changing now. And I want to move into, you know, trust in the in the COVID era. There are so many uh, dimensions to explore. But um, my comfort level with getting into a car with a stranger is quite different now than it was, um, you know, before the pandemic. Do you see that really changing things and affecting industries like Airbnb and, and Uber and changing the way we think about this stuff moving forward? I've been reflecting on the same thing, and I, I'm not sure 
if it's a trust issue or for lack of a better word, a hygiene issue, Mm. I no longer feel safe in the sense that this person might hurt me versus I'm don't feel safe because it's not my car or it's not my home. Mm-hmm. Personally, I think that's temporary um, and it's not a permanent behavioral shift. I think our relationship to strangers is going through a profound shift. And, you know, the way that even I, I find this in public, like the way we see people that we don't know or being in a group or a crowd uh, will feel completely different pre-COVID. But I think these these interactions that really depend on trust between strangers, some of it's a hygiene issue versus a, a trust issue. Got it. Um, I want to talk further about where we are now, and, 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 and there's so many dimensions to this, but just going back to the definition you gave us around trust, a confident relationship to to the unknown. It's about how we are able to handle uncertainty this time of crisis, of course, has engendered tremendous uncertainty. And um, so we can think about trust in the context of, um, you know, belief in science and experts, trust and mistrust in, in, in that, trust in institutions, trust as it relates to technology for things like contact tracing. There's so many angles that have been fascinating. What sort of stood out to you most uh, during this period? Well, let's start with the positive, virtual working, remote working. What you've actually seen in many organizations is it's done wonders for trust because you can't rely physically on being next to someone. So you have to let them get on with things. And I've spoken to many leaders who've said, I didn't realize I was such a control freak. And I used to mistake that for caring a lot, Mm. but I've realized I'm a complete micromanager and I've transformed my leadership uh, style and I've never seen my team be so productive. So I think that is really interesting in terms of physically not being with people that people have experienced the very essence of trust. Mm. Trust in politicians and government, um, to be honest, Peter, it's, it's quite painful watching them make not all leaders around the world so I think Angela Merkel and Jacinda Ardern are you know they're actually through a trust lens um, getting a lot of things right but here in the UK it's a trust free-for-all mm-hmm. and I can't help wondering are they not thinking about it do they not appreciate how important trust is whether it be people believing and adhering to the restrictions, uh, downloading the test and trace app, or this humongous task of vaccinations that we actually have confidence in the vaccine, or not realizing what is now becoming known as as the Cummings effect on trust, Mm -hmm. you know, how those decisions really have a life and death consequence in terms of people's belief in those politicians and and what they're advising people to do. But um, the vaccine one really fascinates me because I think this is going to be slightly controversial to say, but the speed at which it went through and the fact that we were the first country in Europe and the fact that we led with the American vaccine, not the AstraZeneca and Oxford vaccine, these are problems when it comes to trust. 
Yeah, let's let's dig into that. And I do want to come back to to leadership. But the vaccine issue is so so fascinating. And of course, we've just seen in, in, in recent days, the, the first vaccines be approved. Um, as you said, they've come in record time. And it's a, such a, a remarkable scientific achievement. But that very speed, of course, is um, is caused to make some people wonder whether whether corners were cut and whether it's safe. And, uh, you know, you've explored this, in fact, in your Trust Issues podcast, there were two fascinating episodes looking at vaccine hesitancy. This was this was sort of pre-COVID, um, but you know, in some in some societies in Europe and in America, you know, we're seeing polls that suggest that close to fifty percent of people say they they wouldn't get um, a, a vaccine when it becomes uh, available. So I mean, there are many different things driving that. But how do we approach that, and how do we overcome it? Because if we only vaccinate fifty percent of the population, the vaccine's not going to have the population effect that we need. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is recognizing the scale of the problem. And that all the incredible work around the vaccines is, is just going to go to waste if we can't. It's a confidence problem, right? And I really learned this from Dr. Heidi Larson, who runs the uh, Vaccine Confidence Project, that you have to, there's a difference between the question of why don't people believe in the science behind vaccines, right? That question gets us nowhere. Mm-hmm. And what you need to ask is, why do people need or want to not believe in the safety of vaccines? And if you think about it like that, people are coming from different places. So for some people, they're skeptical of big pharma. You can call it conspiracy theory, or you can you can say it's completely sound that they gain, make huge commercial gains from this vaccine, and they're skeptical of that. For other people, they have a genuine fear or resistance around any kind of medical intervention. And then there's another group of people where it's more about fitting in with their friends or parents around them that have chosen for whatever reason not to vaccinate their children. And this is a natural follow on. There's other sort of motives and causes around this. But if you think about those three groups, mm-hmm. the big pharma skeptics, uh, no to medical intervention, or actually this is fitting in and peer pressure, the way you need to communicate to those people and, and uh, understand those people and have empathy with those people is completely different from running a blanket anti-vaxxer. You're in the wrong, you're ignorant and stupid, and you're going to hurt the rest of the country campaign, which is how the government is approaching it. They point the finger at these people and say, you're wrong. You don't understand. You're ignorant. They're not ignorant. Often that they know a lot about this and I feel very passionate that public health communications, the leap that we need to take in understanding where people are coming from and how to move them from, you know, maybe they're, if you had a scale of confidence, some people are three. Well, expecting them to come an eight or nine and get the vaccine tomorrow is not the way this works. You Mm -hmm. have to shift them along the scale so you know how do we get those threes to fives and then fives to sevens and so it is very frustrating but also honestly scares the bejesus out of me when i watch the media and the communications around the rollout of these vaccines this has been a point of humility for me as a doctor and public health practitioner who's been doing a lot of media to help people make sense of the pandemic and the remarkable scientific effort underway to fight it. Deep down, I just want to say, look, we worked really hard on this and studied everything carefully. Trust me, it's safe. You want to do this. But of course, that doesn't work. 
My colleagues in the marketing group are quick to remind me that scolding and browbeating are not the best means of persuasion. Plus, different people have very different reasons to be hesitant about new vaccines. Sure, some are strongly opposed to all vaccines and won't be persuaded easily. Others are skeptical of politicians and big pharma. Some are worried that perhaps we cut corners on safety to develop vaccines so quickly. And historically marginalized and oppressed groups have good reason to be wary, having faced disproportionate harm from a system that's stacked against them. From my experience building vaccination programs and epidemic responses, a community-based strategy is essential. Polio eradication is a great example. In places where centralized vaccination efforts faltered, efforts to understand local context and leverage social capital in communities was critical to overcoming vaccine resistance. I wanted to get Rachel's take on this with COVID-19. How much of this persuasion needs to come from the top down versus from the bottom up? You know, I hear that temptation to say, trust me, I'm the expert on this, you know, and I've only got good intentions, but it doesn't work. Right? We, we know it has what we call the backfire effect. I think it's a combination of uh, continuing with sort of the top down leadership, expert, scientific messaging, and then really thinking about, I, I call um, people who have influence within their, their communities, their local communities, their spheres of influence, um, trust influencers. And these are people that can disproportionately shape your opinion or worldview on something. And you have to identify um, where they're at. And so I think we, and this is where, you know, social media and online communities can help do wonderful things in terms of really finding those voices that can have um, influence uh, within communities. Also, and, and this is a big part of distributed trust, it's about trust that resides in, in local levels. Um, it's about trust that resides in your companies and organizations that uh, have, play a really important role in your life. And so I think the government should be doing more in terms of working with local leaders and with companies and organizations and saying, right, you have a community here, there's pretty tight circle of trust. And so this is how we need your help in bringing everyone along. And, you know, at the end of the day, what you want people saying is, is I want to do this, not for the right reasons. Funny enough, the biggest driver is I want to do this to fit in versus mm -hmm. I don't want to do this because I want to stand out. So I think it's a combination of this, this top-down messaging and rollout and then really thinking about local and communities and trust influences that can really change people's uh, awareness and behaviors within communities that are close to them. Hmm. Makes me think about the going back to the, the UK government's handling of this pandemic. One of the real spectacular failures was the, the, the test and trace system. And, you know, what they what they tried to do since there wasn't really a system in place because of years of underinvestment was to um, throw a bunch of money at a, a couple of shadowy corporations um, to build a really centralized system. And, and these are, you know, companies that had no experience in public health, totally bypassing local authorities and local public health agencies that know their communities that understand um, and are able to engage with communities. And, um, and it just absolutely failed. Mm -hmm. You have more expertise in that. I mean, I looked at that, Peter, and I just thought, how could you have made this decision? Like, did it come from naivety or not even thinking about, 
again, like not even thinking about trust in terms of the entity making this thing and producing this thing is going to have a massive impact on how well the public receives it. And that's technical difficulties aside. I've personally tried to download it 10 times now, Mm -hmm. upgrading my phone and still having problems. Um, And I like to think I'm a reasonably technical, technically competent person. But, you know, after 10 times, I'm going to give up. I think this is just... You know, and the, the fact that when you walk into a restaurant or a shop, it's a printed piece of paper. It's not enough, right? It has mm-hmm. to feel like a formal thing that triggers a behavior and something that you want to do. So I don't want to bash the government, but, you know, if you set very high expectations, so if you say, you know, we're going to have a million tests and trace within this period, or we're going to hit this goal within this particular time frame, and you fail to meet that, and you do that over and over again, so much of trust is that gap between expectations and reality mm-hmm. and the disappointment that happens there. And so again, looping it back to the vaccines, I worry, I don't think setting these goals, 20% of the population, 50% of the population is the right way to go. I would just keep reinforcing this ladder message of, I don't know how many tiers it was it, you know, the first priority down to eight. And I realized I wasn't even on the eighth rung of the ladder. So I've sort of resided <laughs> that I am getting this till 2022, right? But that's actually important. That's an important expectation that I'm not going to be disappointed next year when I haven't got it by the summer. Whereas I speak to so many of my friends and they think they're going to be in the clear by April because of the government's messaging. So how we set expectations is really, really important to trust. And I don't think we're handling that with enough care and attention. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I I see us walking down a path now where the expectations are being set very high that, you know, everything will be um, ice cream and hugs by spring. And um, it's just not going to be the case, right? This is the biggest vaccination campaign in in our lifetimes, if not in in history. And there's, there are going to be all kinds of things that are going to come up and go wrong. And I, I, one of the things I've seen is that there just always hasn't been, even when there's have been attempts at transparency, there hasn't been a clear message and there hasn't been a clear strategy. And I think that just kind of leaves people just not knowing what to, what to, what to believe. Yeah. And I, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think the piece that has been missing has been explaining intentions. So really being clear to people on, on why we're doing this and, and where it's coming from and, and going back to humility, having, the confidence to say, this is what we know about COVID and this is what we don't know. And this is what we're trying to find out. Mm -hmm. In many ways, that's where Merkel and Ardan and other leaders around the world have handled it better. It's, you know, I think, and I don't know if honestly it's to do with male leadership, that there's this sort of value placed on a blustering confidence mm-hmm. that if we all seem sort of, I keep going back to Johnson's announcements, right? Like if we have that war spirit and we're all fighting on, then you should believe in me. <laughs> Whereas I think, and, and you're really the expert on this in, in public health, that there is a, a time and place for not having a strategy and not having a plan. You don't want to hear that, but actually saying the fact is we don't know. And The virus doesn't know that it's summer and the virus doesn't know that it's September and it's time to go back to school. And the virus definitely doesn't know that it's Christmas. And yet the government seems to just try to focus on putting parameters and messaging that feels concrete. And then when we discover 
actually that wasn't true or you couldn't meet that goal, that expectation, it damages trust again. Yeah, I think that um, you know, I've just been exploring a little bit um, uh, what's happening in Australia, which which faced a, a big second wave in uh, June, July, around the same time that um, we did here in the UK, and particularly in the in the Melbourne area and in Victoria State, which includes Melbourne, was was locked down quite strictly for a period of time, and they took a very different approach at that time, which was to say we want to work towards essentially a zero COVID strategy, that no amount of transmission is safe. Um, we don't know exactly how we're going to get there, but we're going to begin with some of these restrictions and we're going to relax them in this way when we reach some targets. And it gave a sense of not that we've got this all figured out, but we have a sense of common purpose and that if we can achieve this, then we can receive that. And I think that really was successful in helping to keep people motivated to make the kinds of sacrifices, um, you know, that were needed here. I think we all pulled together for the first couple of months. And after sort of releasing from that first lockdown, everything has really just gone downhill since. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I mean, I lived in Australia for nine years and have a lot of family and, and friends there. And what I didn't appreciate was, first of all, their lockdown, you didn't even go out for exercise, right? This was, it was so clear around what you could and could not do and and you could do very little. And then a few weeks ago, it's not funny, but I did laugh. Um, My mother-in-law lives in South Australia and they put the entire state. So like you cannot go anywhere or the borders are closed because there were six infections, Mm -hmm. not six deaths or six hospital admissions, Six infections, the whole country was locked down. And she said people accepted it because to your point, there was a goal. We're going to get to case zero again and then we'll open it back up. Yeah. One more thing on vaccines, Rachel, you mentioned earlier the the potential or the upside of social media as, you know, building communities where um, you could have messaging that, um, you know, certain communities can respond to. Of course, the the downside to social media and our information systems these days is um, the misinformation and the information bubbles and the way that we uh, sort of all seem to have our own sets of facts. And, you know, misinformation has been a phenomenal problem during this pandemic. It's also something that has driven sort of certain so-called anti-vaxxer movements pre-COVID as well. How do we navigate that? And and what's the role of kind of, I guess, you know, it's not always the technology um, that is manipulating us, right? We want to believe some of this stuff and we seek information that is comfortable to us, right? Yeah, it's such a complicated, huge question. Um, yes, do I think the tech companies... Um, need to be taking more responsibility and, and doing more and that there are technology solutions around this that can help. But I've come to believe more and more that the work is with the people and us, mm-hmm. that we need to help people, all of us, develop an awareness around when and why we're being pulled or pushed away from information because that's become so reactionary um, and so fast and speed and efficiency around information is part of the problem. So I'm interested in design solutions that create a little bit of friction to slow people down just enough where they start to ask, you know, why am I reading this 
piece or why am I looking for this piece or why am I sharing this piece? It's not the complete solution, but I think we focused a lot on the technology and pointing the finger at, at the tech companies without thinking about design solutions that could be triggers and nudges around our own behaviors and awareness. What might be an example of a, of a little nudge or design idea like that? Um, so on an easy one on social media, I can't remember the exact percentages, but you know, the number of people who share a link just based on the headline without reading it, that you could get a pop-up message just saying, are you sure you want to share this? Um, <laughs> maybe you want to, you know, you could do it with a sense of humor. Maybe you want to read beyond the headline. Uh-huh. It's not slapping people's hands or pointing the finger. It's just like, we all do this, right? I did it the other, I was about to do it the other day and I stopped myself where I literally read a headline and it was, it's in the Atlantic or something. And I was about to send it on. And I was like, I haven't even read the first paragraph or some kind of not disclaimer, but this is one point of view. Um, do you want to read a different point of view? So, you know, how you actually try to hear both sides or even an awareness that there is a different side to this could be really interesting. I wanted to drill down more into the issue of leadership. Rachel mentioned Angela Merkel and Jacinda Ardern, two leaders who have done pretty well in navigating their countries through this crisis and who both happen to be women. In episode two of the series, we met global health activist Dr. Joya Mukherjee, and we reflected on this as well. Joya highlighted feminine as opposed to female leadership, with qualities like empathy, caring, and collaboration explaining how these now iconic leaders have been able to steer their countries through the COVID crisis. I asked Rachel if she buys that. I do, and I I like this distinction between feminine versus female. I think it's better to focus on the qualities uh, some of these leaders exhibited versus the fact that they are female. And I, I think it's interesting in itself that we think of qualities like compassion and like empathy and, and caring that we even think of those things as, as feminine traits. And I honestly believe that one of the positive unintended consequences of this crisis is going to be a new type of leadership. And I think the thing that is really important about compassionate leadership when it's done well is that it's when compassion and strength go hand in hand. Mm. So it's when you have the ability to listen to a room and take in lots of different points of view and have people tell you that you're wrong or push back against you, that you have that kind of relationship with your team and leaders around you, but that you also have the clarity and conviction to make a decision. And so that's what bothers me with some of the labels and terms that we put around it is that we tend to think it's all about, you know, the listening side and the understanding side. And oh, the term that really got to me was uh, female leaders are really good at putting their arms out and giving people a warm hug, <laughs> you know, which is just so insulting. It's patronizing. But it, it is a broader, I think, societal problem that we work at Saeed and we see this, right? Like how we teach students there, it starts with, you know, how they think about decision-making, how they think about their own behaviors and compassionate leadership, the conviction, the determination, 
the strength, the decision-making, the ability to move at speed, they all go hand in hand. So it's how we move away from this model where you expect to have all the answers and, you know, there's this confidence that we mistake for competence, I think is a mm -hmm. huge problem, a huge problem. But that's my hope, honestly, that we, we start to place more value in these types of leaders, whether it be in education, hiring, mentoring, coaching, um, and that a new generation of leadership rises up. Yeah, we, we talk a lot with, um, well, the students we share about, about systems leadership. And, and one of the things we've explored in this series and that we're, we'll be working on um, with our, our MBAs this year is sort of examining some of the flaws in our social and economic systems and all the things laid bare by the COVID crisis but also what it's going to take to shift things. And the, the characteristics of a so-called systems leader are the ability to see the bigger picture, uh, the ability to see different points of view, to bring new voices to the table, to walk in the shoes of others, uh, and the ability to sort of build coalitions and, and collaborations. And I think a lot of that um, touches on some of the things that, um, that you've talked about. Yeah, I think it's, and so much, so much of this exists in a leader that, can be what I call in the space in between. So you think this and I think this. And so what's going on in that space in between? Because there's something interesting there that we have these two different points of view. And I, I believe that we can teach this. I think it is actually a skill that you can learn and a self-awareness that you can develop. You know, that we've become so obsessed with habits around productivity and um, creativity and whatever it may be, which are great and really important, but less focused on really healthy habits of the mind. And if you don't develop those from an early age, by the time you're in a leadership position, you know, your reflexes are just to be really quick and responsive um, versus developing this intellectual humility that I think will become one of the most valuable traits that we look for in leaders moving forward. You're giving me one of these moments that I have frequently teaching at university level, and I think I should be a kindergarten teacher instead, because so much of this stuff needs to start early, right? System thinking needs to start early, thinking about um, how we socialize and interact with and persuade and the others needs to start early. Um, we need to we need to move upstream. I started a university in Rwanda, and then the first thing we realized as we were starting it is we needed a secondary school, then a primary school, then a nursery on the same campus. Um, We've talked about leadership and, and reflected on some of the, the political leaders um, that have been present throughout this crisis. What about in business and on the organizational side? What dynamics have you, have you seen through this pandemic um, that's worked well or that hasn't worked well? So we touched on the trust and virtual and remote working. And I think the hybrid models that are going to emerge from this are going to be super interesting. You know, and the very role of the office and the workplace and what that could be as long as we don't think oh it's it's over now let's all go back right like that's my biggest fear that we don't actually see this as a a design opportunity in terms of really rethinking systems and how that drives the way people behave it's interesting in business i completely support and understand the the furlough scheme um particularly for industries that have been paralyzed right they cannot function Every time uh, you go down a high street and you just see everything closed, it just mm. it really is heartbreaking. But I have mixed feelings around companies that were just too fat or had a model that needed re reinventing. Mm -hmm. 
And then this has delayed a problem. Um, I've seen this in a lot of organizations that the furlough meant that they didn't really need to take a hard look at themselves and the way that they operate and the role that they play in customers and people's lives and find that resilience. And in that resilience is where the reinvention and creativity happens. So, you know, talking to a company the other day and I can't say a name, but they, they're really hard hit. And the leader is just digs in really good at motivating people and has come up with the most incredible model of reinvention because she has been comfortable being in that place of uncertainty that it's led to her taking risks and seeing things completely differently. So I know it sounds sort of pessimistic or hard on companies, but I do worry that many have sort of coasted Mm. and that next year we're going to fall off an economic cliff. And because yes, they've been in choppy waters, but there's been a really big life raft. They haven't developed that resilience as a culture and a team to really get through this. It's so interesting. This is, you know, I'm, I'm out of my depth a little bit here, but um, I mean, I think there's no question, obviously, that, you know, through this crisis, the need to support um, people economically is, is, is so important. And uh, initially, I thought with the furlough scheme, well, that keeps people in jobs. That's a really good thing. And, and, and someone pointed out to me recently that um, the approach taken in the U.S., and the U.S. hasn't done a lot of stuff right, um, but at least initially early on of giving sort of uh, relief checks to individuals rather than um, giving people a part of their salary to keep them in jobs also actually had um, uh, a, a bigger impact in terms of propping up the economy. And so we've seen deeper GDP dives here, which was interesting and surprising and changed my perspective a little bit. Rachel, I wonder about um, what do you think might happen in terms of kind of innovation, right? We talked about how companies, we may be propping up companies stuck in the status quo. We say necessity is the mother of invention and never waste a good crisis and things like that. Do you see more risk-taking and innovation coming out of this or less? I think it, it really depends on on the sector and then every organization's culture. So um, I talk about this idea, Peter, called trust leaps. Mm-hmm. Trust leaps are whenever we ask people to take a risk to do something differently or to do something new. And trust leaps are what power innovation. They are what power uh, reinvention. And you can look at sectors, the obvious being healthcare um, and virtual health um, and telehealth. They've seen trust leaps accelerated in a time in a way that we've never seen before. I think it's going to be really interesting in sectors like education. You know, I personally feel very strongly that this is a way to think beyond the privileged few in the classroom Mm -hmm. and to really think about a hybrid model of learning that isn't just sort of pure online courses. But yet I worry that again, you know, Clay Shirky, he's a brilliant thinker. He says, you know, institutions will always try to preserve the problem to which they are the solution. <laughs> and it's the most brilliant quote, right? Because it's like, will they go back to a delivery model and a mechanism that just preserves at the end of the day, the way they make money versus generating societal value? This brings me to something that I think is really important and what the UK and many countries need to be doing right now. 
is I would like to see more pride and more hope injected into the future, into 2021. So I think what we need is huge projects and systems change that help people understand and are a really powerful signal that good things have come out of this. So going back to the vaccines, you know, one of the things I felt strongly about the Oxford and not because the association with Oxford is it could have been a very proud moment for Britain, right? Mm -hmm. Made in Britain, produced in Britain. And then it's what you do with that, right? So then you say, look at the power of private-public partnerships. Mm. Look what happens when scientists and business can come together and the incredible things that we can create. We're launching 10 labs around the country because science is our future. Or take areas of the country that have been decimated, whether that be in the north or, or south, and say, this is a 10-year green tech hub because we're going to become the leader in, I'm not an expert on wind technology, but these huge bets that pull people forward and take these learnings and say, we are going to change the systems so that we can create a better world for you and for future generations. And there's, I don't know if it's coming, but there's not enough of that, which I think is really important for morale, but also for innovation. Well, there it is, your call to action. Embrace the uncertainty and make a trust leap. What are those big moonshot projects that can unite us in this decisive decade? Recall the way Christiana Figueres painted a beautiful picture of what a decarbonized future would look and feel like. That's the kind of positivist vision that gets me fired up, that gives us all something to work towards. One more callback, this time to episode one, Redwoods in Rwanda, when Indy Johar called on us to be much bolder. So in the waning days of this utterly awful year, I challenge you to make a New Year's resolution. What is the bold trust leap that you'll make in 2021? My thanks to Rachel Botsman and to all our guests in this series for helping us make sense of this moment and reimagine the future. And thanks to all of you for listening and sharing. I hope you've enjoyed this as much as I have. We're signing off for now, so take a moment to hit that subscribe button. That way you'll be the first to know what we have in store for the new year. You've been listening to Reimagine, a podcast from the Skoll Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Oxford University's Said Business School. Do you want to see things differently? Subscribe to Reimagine wherever you get your podcasts. Take a moment to rate and review us. Find me on Twitter at Peter Drobak. And to learn more about social entrepreneurship and the Skoll Center, visit reimaginepodcast.com. From Oxford, I'm Peter Drobak, and this is Reimagine, a podcast about people who are inventing the future. Until next time, thanks for listening and stay safe.